Welcome to Public Health Out Loud. Public Health for the Public High. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Dr. Philip Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, good to see you again. And we're here today with one of the all-stars of the Rhode Island Department of Health, Alicia Mahalikas. Alicia, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Dr. McDonald. How are you? I'm good. And one of, the, one of the things about the pandemic that's been a good thing for me, at least, is I've got to work with you a lot more. And that's been fun for me. Um, and it's been one, it's amazing to see how much you do. It's amazing to see how much you get done. And it's just amazing to see the breadth of all that you're involved with. But why don't we just start with just, can you just tell us a little bit about who Alicia Mahalikas is? And when did you start the Department of Health and what's your current role here? Sure. Um, I am currently the the chief of the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health. I started at the department in 2004, and it's sort of an interesting story of how I got here. I was um, an EMT as an undergrad, and I was interested in going to medical school. Um, And my father uh, was diagnosed with cancer while I was in college. So we had a very personal experience firsthand of what happens in the healthcare system and how challenging clinical trials are, how challenging uh, navigating insurance can be. And I said, maybe this is not the romanticized version of medicine I thought it would be, and maybe that's not what I want to do. So my senior year, I discovered public health and became very interested in potentially being part of the change. So I Um, So I applied to grad school and I got into a wonderful program at Boston University in maternal and child health because I really love healthy moms and babies. And I thought if I could if I could rock babies for the rest of my career, uh, you know, what a great opportunity that would be. And just, you know, helping to ensure that, you know, kids are are safe and healthy moving forward. Um, But when I graduated from grad school. It was 2004. It was just, you know, very, very shortly after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks of 2001 and funding in public health was flooding in to support bioterrorism preparedness and response. And so it was very difficult to find a job in maternal and child health at that time, but there were many jobs that had to do with bioterrorism. So while that was not the content that I studied, I certainly had a lot of experience um, through a very hands-on program for program uh, needs assessment, development, and evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I can learn about, I can learn new content. So when I applied for the job at the Department of Health, I got a call from the person who would ultimately become my boss. And he said, are you really an EMT with an MPH? And I said, yes, I am. And so uh, that my career in public health was born. So I started my, my time here at the department, learning everything there was to know about anthrax, viral hemorrhagic fevers, botulism, uh, new, um, mnemonic plague and, um, really terrifying myself, but really enjoying the content and the partnership. The thing that really appealed to me about the job was that it was a federal grant at a state health department, but working with the municipal partners and the healthcare system. So I really got to experience public health at all levels. Um, and the breadth of the partnerships we have in public health emergency preparedness and response is really appealing to me because the content is so varied and we have so many wonderful partners to work with across the spectrum. So um, I, I came Absolutely. on to, to lead the pro, uh, the planning for our medical emergency distribution system, which is how we rapidly administer vaccine or distribute uh, medication during an emergency. And that has really grown in leaps and bounds. And we've used it uh, for many, many different ways during the COVID-19 pandemic. So yeah. it's been an amazing experience. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. I do want to just uh, echo what Dr. McDonald said. I mean, Alicia is really one of our all-stars here, Hall of Famer, really, uh, but one of the people 
uh, behind the scenes that really makes the department really makes the Department of Health run. So thank you, Alicia, for all your work. And uh, I remember one one of the first times I met you, you were actually dressed in one of those spacesuits for Ebola. If you remember, we were in an Ebola training. That was certainly crazy. Let me ask you this. I think we, uh, Department of Health, have done so much to prepare for the pandemic here. Talk to us about some of the behind the scenes uh, challenges and, and, and how we prepared for the pandemic and some of the challenges that, that you've experienced. Emergency preparedness and response is really based on planning, training, and exercising. So that's our cycle of continuous quality improvement. And we engage with partners throughout that spectrum on in big ways and small ways to tap into their subject matter expertise and to really train people in what their roles would be in different types of emergencies. And we we really try to vary the, the cycles that we go through for all different types of emergencies because, believe it or not, when you're when you're learning to respond to a chemical nerve agent attack, you are also learning things that are uh, valuable when we're talking about a disease outbreak. So we really not only are trying to build our baseline content knowledge and expertise, but also really cross train so that we're able to respond as agilely as possible. So we have worked. Um, really hard to build a lot of great capabilities across the department so that we have the ability to flex really quickly when we have a new disease show up on our radar screen. So we have surveillance systems. And you know, certainly prior to this event, we have a great baseline foundation for the teams who work on tuberculosis and flu outbreaks in facilities and, and other things. We learned in leaps and bounds when we when it came to Ebola and H1N1 and Zika virus, when we had to build new systems to be able to support novel diseases. Um, the same thing with our laboratory partners. They, you know, they do tremendous work every day in protecting public health, uh, but when they have to flex and surge for new capabilities and to bring new people into the mix, we've had prior experiences that have really highlighted our ability to do that. And the list goes on when we talk about our communications partners, when we talk about how we operate in our incident command system and different response structures, whether we're leading something or we are part of a much larger structure. Um, we had a lot of baseline successes that we've built upon over the years that allowed us, especially at the beginning of this response, to move very rapidly and to maintain a good sense of situational awareness. I think the biggest challenge we faced in this event is that no one could have prepared for an event of this duration or magnitude or complexity because it COVID has touched every element of our lives in some way. So it's one thing to say, you know, that we might have a long recovery period after we have a hurricane and it's going to have, you know, you know, economic impacts and behavioral health impacts and obviously, um, you know, sometimes health impacts, but it's a totally different thing to say, we're going to touch every level of everybody's of everybody's world. And so that was the challenge was, you know, how do you organize a response to be able to, you know, bring in commerce and education and the Department of Health and, 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 right, all of our partners to be able to have this ongoing conversation and maintain some sense of situational awareness of how one piece in the matrix touches every other piece. Um, and we've really struggled with that, not just here in Rhode Island, but this is a national and a global problem. You know, we don't have a country to point to, to say, you know what, they really got the whole thing right. We've seen some rising stars where, th you know, they've had their moment of like, wow, if only we could have followed Hong Kong or only we could have followed New Zealand or, you know, some of those really great examples only to see something shift in the pandemic that has changed their, their success as well. 
So, you know, we've really had to roll with the punches. And I think the most important thing, you know, Dr. McDonald pointed this out the other day is the resilience of people. You know, I am constantly pleasantly surprised that our team is intact. Our core Rido team is intact. We have so many amazing people we've met in this response from different agencies, from contracted partners who come in to support us at various points during the response. But really, the core team at Rido has remained the same since we started this in January of 2020. And we couldn't be more grateful. Um, it's, I think, challenged everybody, both personally and professionally, every day for the past 21 months um, to, you know, again, to continue to persevere, to continue to work through all of the very complex problems and try to maintain a, both a sense of humor and a sense of creativity to problem solve throughout the process. You know, one of the things that I was just thinking about, Alicia, is, you know, the pandemic's full of stories. And, and one of the themes about the pandemic on the response end is, just critical shortages of everything. And it, it's funny, I remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, it was day eight of the pandemic and, you know, Rhode Island Attorney um, National Guard General Chris Callahan, you know, at one point just said, no one's coming. We're going to war with the army we have. And this is when we're just trying to get personal protective equipment from our strategic national stockpile. There just wasn't anything to come. Once we get that 25% allotment, there just wasn't anything more to come. So there you go, it wasn't there. And it really gets the Zarder issue of like, it's been true for testing, been true for PPE, for the vaccine or not. When we first got monoclonal antibodies, it, it just just keeps going. There's always a shortage of everything. And it's even spilled over to the rest of our culture. I mean, computer chips are a shortage too. But like, can you think of a story in particular, a little bit about how one of the stories about the shortages, I was thinking about personal protective equipment, how that was so hard to get personal protective equipment. The governor was on the phone in the middle of the night. We're all trying to find stuff. What are some stories that come to mind to you that were kind of memorable, how hard it was to get personal protective equipment or PPE? Sure. I think there were many challenges on that front, not only about the actual acquisition. And again, we were so lucky that we had uh, partners from the corporate entities in Rhode Island who really stepped up to help facilitate that process for us in terms of reaching out through all kinds of partnerships through business that they had to help you know, get us whatever, whatever they could get their hands on. Um, and many, many businesses in Rhode Island supported us through, uh, through that process. Um, I think we had entities that knew very well how to use PPE. They knew how to use it safely. They knew how to train others in order to do it. And then we had other partners, you know, at the nursing home level, at the group home level who use basic PPE all the time. But all of a sudden, you know, every staff member had to be wearing an N95. And because there weren't enough N95s, they had to wear them for days and days on end until basically they fell apart. And we went through some experimental processes that were, you know, sort of uh, presented to us by the federal government in terms of options for cleaning N95s and, and other PPE, which we'd never really considered before. So it was very challenging because there was a huge training learning curve that had to occur in this process, but also that we, um, you know, again, we're trying to maximize the resources in ways that, you know, months before the pandemic, you know, we, we've heard loudly and clearly from our healthcare system partners, people would have been fired for using PPE in those ways because they went against traditional infection control processes. So, you know, one of the inspiring things about the pandemic is all of these lessons we've learned about the use of PPE and how it can be maximized when it needs to be in ways that actually keep people safer. Um, so we've, you know, done a lot of training, you know, 
Dr. Chan was mocking my uh, Ebola garb when we were training on donning and doffing PPE uh, during Ebola, which is you know a much higher level of PPE than we've experienced, fortunately, during COVID. But we know that most healthcare workers who get exposed because of PPE uh, are exposed in the doffing process, meaning the taking off of PPE. So if we can be practical about what it's like to put PPE on, wear it effectively without causing infection to others, um, you know, we can actually maximize both the PPE and reduce the risk to healthcare workers in the in at all at the same time. Um, some of the heartbreaking stories that that have to do with PPE were just having to tell people that we didn't have enough. So, you know, Dr. McDonald, you mentioned we were we were really forward leaning on making the request to the federal government to get assets out of the strategic national stockpile, and we were more successful than most other states because we were so quick to make that request. And both Dr. Alexander Scott and Governor Raimondo pushed really, really hard on the federal partners uh, to get us those supplies and to then get us more. Um, but we were we never had enough, you know, in the initial parts of the of the response. And so, again, to have to work with partners who were working under extreme conditions, especially our nursing home partners, um, at, you know, who were just having such a horrible time because COVID was spreading so rapidly and they were doing everything they possibly could while they were sick, too. You know, that, that was the other challenge that I think people don't always um, appreciate is that while we have all of these frontline workers who, who work across the healthcare sector, including our behavioral health sector, um, they are, you know, working in really tight environments. And it's it's up close and personal for them, just like it has been for us. You know, we've we've all grown together in this process. We've spent a lot of time on Zoom and on conference calls and in the beginning, you know, shoulder to shoulder for, you know, 18 hours a day in the operations center. Um, these are people's families, essentially, and we, they were watching them get violently ill and then die. And that was really, really difficult, especially when we didn't have enough PPE to help support them. You know, Alicia, one of the things I'm just curious about, there's this story around the Department of Health that once we had an 18-wheeler come that was empty. Yeah. Is it lore? Is it a myth? Did it really happen? Would you get an 18-wheeler of PPE that was really empty? Did that really happen? It did. And and I think it just is another demonstration of how rapidly things were moving in over the course of this pandemic. So our partners, you know, who are truck drivers, had regulations that were waived by the U.S. Department of Transportation because there was such a need to move commodities so rapidly early in the response. So people were tired, they were overworked, and we had a truck that arrived at our at one of our warehouses. And the truck driver hopped out and said, I'm here to pick up PPE, but it was at a receiving warehouse. And so the person who was running that warehouse said, I, I think something, you know, something is mistaken here. This is, we were supposed to be receiving PPE, not pushing out PPE. And so there was this moment where that driver had to then figure out where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be doing. So yes, there was an empty truck that arrived, but again, Communication is a really tricky thing when people are moving a thousand miles an hour and there was so much happening and everybody was working so hard. And I, I suspect that truck driver was probably also either the truck driver or the dispatcher was very tired uh, from all of the work that they were doing to get PPE everywhere they possibly could, that it just, it was just a mistake in the process. But yes, it was a very disappointing moment to have, you know, to, to think that more PPE was coming and then have a truck open and it be completely empty. Yeah, and I think that that just summarizes really the whole pandemic, an empty truck of PPE. I mean, it's just uh, just quite ridiculous. 
Alicia, one other thing I would just wanted to, to ask you about, uh, you've been involved in, in the field hospitals, the alternative care sites, as we call them, uh, but field hospitals, I think it's, I think it's sometimes lost on us that we got to the point in this pandemic where we actually had to set up separate hospitals uh, in our state to accommodate for the uh, the burden of this pandemic uh, in our in our population, our state here. Um, I can not even imagine what it takes to set up a hospital. Talk to us about what it does take to set up a hospital and uh, and what that was like. Sure. So. It requires a lot of subject matter expertise, first of all, which is something that's outside of the scope of the department in terms of building a hospital. And so our Rhode Island National Guard partners were incredibly helpful in reaching out very quickly to to companies that build hospitals in austere conditions everywhere in the world. And they were able to identify a really wonderful vendor who came in and very rapidly built three alternate hospital sites for us for low acuity care um, for COVID positive patients. So this meant that air handling, for instance, had to be very, very carefully curated because we couldn't be releasing COVID, uh, you know, uh, you know, across a building or outside of the building. It meant that we needed to ensure that there were adequate, you know, oxygen lines that were built in so that patients who required oxygen, which is very common when you're even at a low acuity, uh, COVID level, uh, were able to get oxygen. It meant that we had to contract for additional staff to come in from other parts of the country to help support the operations of those alternate hospital sites. Um, but it was a really tremendous effort on behalf of the Rhode Island National Guard, the Rhode Island Department of Administration, and their Division of Capital Asset uh, Management and Maintenance, and, and our healthcare system partners who really stepped up and said, yes, we're willing to take this on. We know that this is above and beyond, but this is something that's not new. It's not something that we hadn't talked about previously. We certainly had, um, even during H1N1, we considered opening alternate care sites or alternate hospital sites, uh, but never reached the threshold where it became necessary. So we did have two alternate hospital sites open Open, one at the Rhode Island Convention Center in Providence and one at um, on Sakonasset Crossroads in Cranston. And the one in Providence was run by Rhode Island Hospital and the other was run by Kent Hospital. Um, and, and in the last wave of this pandemic, they saw over 700 patients in that space. Um, so it wasn't as big as we had planned for, meaning, you know, we didn't have the patient volume, fortunately, that it required. But there were 700 patients who otherwise would have been overcrowded into already very crowded hospitals who received really amazing care in those spaces. So the patient experience was a primary focus of um, the hospitals themselves in terms of ensuring that the patients felt um, well cared for, that, you know, understanding that it was a novel environment that's not the same as being in, in a hospital proper, as we, as we referred to them, that they really had something to look forward to, that they got to enjoy their experience. We had couples, we had families um, who all got transferred there together. Um, so the feedback that came from the patients who were cared for there was really, really positive. And that's what we really hoped for. They got high quality care and they, they had a very positive experience overall. It's a little bit daunting if you think about it. You know, if you're a patient who has been hospitalized or is about to be hospitalized, you know, from the emergency department to be told you're going to go into a space that you've never seen before. Uh, it's not going to look like what you see in a medical drama on television. 
um, it's going to look very different. And so um, again, the patient experience there, I think was very positive. We had great outpouring of supports. We had schools who were making cards for the patients who were there, you know, to just send them a little bit of love. We had musicians statewide who volunteered to hold virtual concerts for the folks who were in the alternate hospital sites. I mean, truly amazing work done um, both clinically and personally for the individuals who were there because they were also helping to be part of the solution. When they said, yes, I'm willing to go to the alternate hospital site because I know that I can get the appropriate care there, they were freeing up a bed for the next person who might have been sicker than they were. So it was really you know, a, a shared experience and a shared success by both you know, the patients, the clinicians, and all of the magicians, as I call them, um, who came around to ensure that all of that um, function was built around them so that, again, safe care could be offered at the convention center or in what was once, you know, a call center for Citizens Bank, not things, you know, we typically do in medicine. Was there anything in particular that just stands out for you as a positive in the pandemic? There are so many things, Dr. McDonald. It's it's really hard to choose just one. Um, I think that the most important thing for me was to see the work that my core team has done actually demonstrated in reality. You know, so when we talk about the um, the coordination that we did with the healthcare system, when we talk about, you know, the feedback that we got from our healthcare system partners, when we talk about the, um, the municipal points of dispensing where, you know, municipalities stood up multiple times to administer vaccine to their partners, when we had all of these warehousing operations, right? When I, when I thought I was going to, uh, you know, snuggle babies for the rest of my career. I never considered that I was going to need a forklift driver's license, right? And work in a warehouse as part of my day-to-day job. But that became part of my reality many years ago, right? So I had an amazing team on the ground with partnership from the Rhode Island Emergency Management Agency. Again, the Department of Administration's Division of Capital Asset Management and Maintenance. We had staff who came in from CCRI to support us um, to create this enormous and efficient PPE distribution system. Right, all of these things that we had building blocks for along the way that we then got to execute were incredibly inspiring. Like those moments where you pinch yourself and go, I can't believe we made that happen. So it doesn't mean it hasn't been without truly blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, you know, across across the past 20 months, folks are really, really tired. Um, but again, I'm so proud of the work that people have done to set us up for success and that they continue to show up and give 110% every day to ensure that we are protecting our Rhode Islanders, that we're protecting our partners, um, and that we're continuing to build and improve every step of the way. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. And I, I know our time is winding down here. So let's end on this one last question for you. Where do you think we're going with the pandemic? What makes you optimistic or not about the future? I'm hoping that we are going to a state where we will, uh, where COVID will become just an ongoing part of our lives, but it will not require so much time and attention and that we can focus on some of the other things that we know are also critical to public health and, and that we can protect against those things as well. Um, we recently got a, um, approval for Pfizer booster doses. So we know that individuals who are most vulnerable and especially those who got vaccine very early will get an extra boost of protection through the vaccine mechanisms. I'm hoping in the short term that those approvals will come for Moderna and 
uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine if the data warrants the need for a booster for those vaccines. And then really kids 5 to 11. We have a lot of very anxious parents, especially because kids are back in school and we're seeing COVID spread rapidly um, in some schools. So we'd love to get the kids 5 to 11 who are willing to be vaccinated, vaccinated. And then I think we will fingers crossed, as long as immunity holds and we don't have a wild variant that takes us on another roller coaster of adventure, we may be able to settle into a, a, a new sense of moving forward. So I'm optimistic that those, those steps will occur in the next few weeks um, and that we'll begin to move toward um, that. I would love to take I would love to give everybody on my team a break. I would love for each of you to take a break. I would love to personally take a break um, and, you know, take a little bit of a deep breath and say, this is, you know, okay, now, now what does the picture look like? What does COVID mean for us in the long term? Is it now an endemic disease? You know, will it have a season in the way that flu does, you know, that we're going to need to um, take action for and prepare for? But let's find where this is going to exist in our lives moving ahead and get back to some of the other work that is, you know, so important and inspiring and rewarding. Thank you, Alicia. You know, and I think you summarized it well. I'm optimistic about our future um, in many ways, too. I've got my concerns, mind you, but I'm optimistic, too. But one of the things we like to do at Public Health Out Loud is close out with a final word from Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan, what's the final word today? Yeah, thank you, Dr. McDonald. And thank you, Alicia, so much for joining us on today's podcast. And thank you for all your work that you've been doing on behalf of the Department of Health. I'd like to end on uh, a moment of Zen here to consider for people to consider throughout the rest of their day. And here it is. It's a quote from Barack Obama, one of my favorite quotes here. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change we seek. So thank you all and be well. I want to thank Alicia Mahalikas, our guest today. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer. Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, medical director of Health. Have a good and keep up the great.